and a hot price look. Yeah, you know me and my boy, we was down in North Carolina, not too far from Winston-Salem. Five old stoppers, trying to talk some stuff. I said the police might arrest me, but the judge gon' set me free. Man-made law, I even know that. And that was Billy Bragg and Wilco from the Mermaid Avenue Sessions. That was Against the Law. Greetings and welcome to Howie 2020. This is an independent podcast on progressive politics inspired by Bernie Sanders, Howie Hawkins, Angela Walker, progressive and radical activism, and the Green Party. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, PAC, or political organization. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2020 at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2020. You can find out more about Bernie2020 and Howie2020 at Bernie-2020.com. You'll find all the back episodes there and you'll find some links to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up is a story written by Mike Davis, published at Asbury Park Press and republished at usatoday.com. They tweeted, retweeted photo of a cop at a Black Lives Matter protest. Then came felonies. It began with a tweet of a police officer at a Black Lives Matter protest in June and a crude request to identify him. Quote, if anyone knows who this bitch is, throw his info under this tweet. The tweet read, sitting home in Queens Village, New York, Jorgana Zizak saw the tweet appear on her Twitter timeline and clicked the retweet button. Nearly one month later, Zizak was issued a summons charging her with a felony, fourth degree cyber harassment, with the intent to harm or place a person in fear of harm, after retweeting the post, which has since been deleted. Quote, As a 20-year-old that simply retweeted a tweet to help my friend, I'm now at risk of giving up my career, serving time, and having a record, Zizak wrote on a GoFundMe page, which has raised more than $8,000 for her legal bills. Sizak is one of five people charged with cyber harassment as part of the case. The four others include Belleville resident Kevin Alfaro, who acknowledged in an online fundraising campaign that he made the original tweet, and alleged retweeters Andrew Koleski and Belleville residents Diana Ludizaka and Camilla McCulloch. The felony charges carry a maximum 18-month prison sentence and $10,000 fine. The cases have been referred to the Essex County Prosecutor's Office, which declined comment. None has yet made an initial court appearance. The summons filed against all five defendants alleges that Nutley Police Detective Peter P.J. Sandomenico, the officer in the photo, quote, 
feared harm would come to himself, family, and property due to the tweet and retweets. The case marks another signpost in what has been a spring and summer of conflict between Black Lives Matter protesters, their supporters, and police, this one asking a court to draw a line between free speech and police accountability and criminal harassment. In New Jersey, New York, Portland, Oregon, and cities and states across the country, protesters and law enforcement continue to clash in the courts, with both sides alleging illegal conduct by the other, including excessive force by police and assault by protesters. The Essex County charges are unusual in that they target conduct far apart from the street protests. An attorney for Koleski, Koslecki, could not be reached, and Alfaro did not immediately respond to a message on his GoFundMe campaign, which has collected about $2,500 for his legal bills. Attempts to reach Ludizaka and Mikulik via their social media profiles were not immediately successful. The Black Lives Matter protest in Nutley on June 26 largely involved dueling factions of protesters separated by a line of police with zip-tie hand restraints at the ready. In the days prior to the march, rumors spread that the Black Lives Matter protesters planned on toppling a bust of Christopher Columbus in front of Town Hall. Counter-protesters took to the streets and the two factions traded chants. On his GoFundMe page, Alfaro explained why he made the original tweet, writing that he, quote, uploaded a photo with the intent of identifying an officer wearing a Blue Lives Matter mask. He added, without detailing any specific conduct, that the officer, quote, was befriending a counter-protester he described as a blatant racist. On her own GoFundMe page, Sizak said that in the post she saw, the police officer's back was to the camera, and his badge number wasn't visible. Quote, I did not reply, did not say anything against this cop, and had zero clue to who he was, she said. I simply retweeted, because I feel that just as with anyone we should hold our officers accountable. The purpose of this tweet was to find out the officer's information, to hold him accountable. San Domenico Nutley Police Chief Thomas Stromolo and officials with the local police union did not return multiple emails and calls seeking comment. In an email, Nutley Police Spokesman Detective Lieutenant Anthony Montanari said the case, quote, remains under investigation, which prevents me from providing any further details at this time. According to police reports filed by Nutley Detective Michael Rempicheski, Quote, it was clear the detective San Domenico was acting in the capacity of a police officer at the protest as he was wearing a tactical vest with bright yellow lettering that said Nutley Police. The reports also state that San Domenico, quote, feared for the safety of his family and property and that the retweets were, quote, to intimidate him and make him fear for his well-being. The reports also detail how Rempuscheski, located each of the defendants, including Alfaro, who officers identified as being at the march, and Kol Koslecki, identified by police as leader of the Nutley for Black Lives group. Rempuscheski 
said he identified Zizak by using a social media photo of her name on Delta Airlines boarding pass and matched it to her driver's license photo and social media accounts. Similarly, Luzaka was identified by comparing photos from her social media accounts with her driver's license photo. In order to identify Mikulek, Rempuszewski said San Domenico, quote, spoke with the school resource officer and vice principal of Bellevue High School, where she graduated from in June. Alan Perutin, an attorney representing Zizak, said the cyberbullying charge violates the First Amendment. He pointed to a 2017 ruling by the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, which held that the First Amendment allowed the public to photograph police. The case stemmed from indictments in which journalists were barred from photographing protester arrests. Quote, This is a generation that lives on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Perutin said. They see something and mindlessly retweet it. How that rises to the level of a crime, I don't know. I can't speak to why the police officer felt his life or family were in danger, Perutin added. Adam Scott Want, a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, said police officers are just one class of public officials who have long sought for protection from having their personal information exposed out of fear of retribution. Last week, U.S. District Judge Esther Salas called for more privacy for judges after authorities said a gunman, believed to be a self-described anti-feminist attorney, went to Judge's North Brunswick home, killed her son, and critically injured her husband. Quote, We have to pay attention to this. It was two weeks ago. A federal judge's family was shot up, Want said. Police officers are being attacked and hit with bottles, bricks, and stones. But he added that the charges seemed like, quote, a bit of a stretch. If you're going to charge somebody with a crime like this, you need both the criminal mind and the criminal act, Want said. Alfaro is not exactly asking for bodily harm. He's not asking for a home address. Yeah, he's using an expletive, but that's his right to do so. He added, I could think of perfectly legitimate reasons why he might do what he did. Alexander Shalom, senior supervising attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union of New Jersey, called the case as a dangerous, quote, extension of criminal liability if someone who retweets something as innocuous as this is facing criminal charges. Quote, insulting police over the Internet has not been nor will it be illegal, Shalom said. To the extent officers are using this charge, they better first understand what it does and does not prescribe because their expansion of it really goes into a violation of people's right to protected speech. Shalom said that while there are ways in which doxing, publishing sensitive personal information of somebody publicly online, can be illegal, there must be an intent to cause physical or emotional harm or make them fearful of harm, Shalom said. He said he doesn't believe there is any evidence of harm or intent to harm. To say, tell me who this bitch is, could be so he could do something horrible, or it could be because he wants to file an internal affairs complaint against this person. Nothing is changed because the protester, because the poster, used the word bitch. Want pointed to a 2011 decision by the U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled that even, quote, offensive or outrageous language 
was protected by the First Amendment. The case stemmed from a lawsuit against the Westboro Baptist Church practice of protesting at military funerals. Shalom noted similarities between the Nutley tweet and a 2017 case in which the Ewing Police Department charged 31-year-old Octavius Covington with cyber harassment after he posted online videos showing guns being fired at a police car. A week later, a judge dismissed the case, calling the videos speech that's protected under the First Amendment. Perutin said Sizak has been, quote, frightened and bewildered since she received the summons charging her with felony cyber harassment. She works as a pharmacy technician, Perutin said, and her license would be nullified if she's convicted. On her GoFundMe page, Sizak wrote that she believes, quote, retweeting a tweet asking for his information has left her unfairly on the hook for thousands in legal bills. I feel afraid that I may have compromised my whole future based on something that I had believed was exercising my First Amendment right, Sizak said. Outrageous charges simply for retweeting a tweet. Next up is a story published at jacobinmag.com written by Megan Day. The Senate just abandoned the working class without a COVID-19 relief package. The enhanced federal unemployment checks have expired, but tens of millions remain unemployed, even with the economy recklessly reopening in places. The eviction moratoria, if they were put in place at the beginning of the pandemic at all, are being lifted, and the landlords are proceeding to evict. Piles of belongings are appearing on sidewalks and curbs. There's a new name for them. Eviction cairns. Cabinets stacked on mattresses, stacked on vacuum cleaners. They can't go where the tenants are going. There isn't room because the tenants are moving into the spare rooms and onto the couches of family and friends or into residential motels if they're lucky. Some are sleeping in their cars. Others are sleeping in shelters. Still more are sleeping on the ground. They have been, in every sense, tossed out. Tossed out of the economy. Tossed out of their homes. Tossed out like refuse. This has happened for many reasons, chief among them the absence of anything resembling a functional social welfare state without which the American working class dances on the razor's edge of poverty, and those already living in poverty dance on the razor's edge of death. The desperation of millions is advantageous for a few. Slumlords, predatory lenders, and average employers who prefer labor cheap and workers compliant. This smaller class is also fiercely resistant to furnishing the revenue in the form of taxes necessary to build and maintain the universal public programs, cradle-to-grave services that in practice establish basic needs as social rights, that mitigate desperation and keep people away from the edge. The state's subservience to this smaller class, whose interests automatically gravitate towards austerity, deregulation, and privatization, and are thus in direct conflict with the interests of the rest of society, is the ultimate answer to the puzzling question of how a deadly virus has resulted 
in eviction cairns. But in a more concrete and immediate sense, Congress is responsible. Enhanced federal unemployment benefits, which were keeping and even lifting millions of people out of poverty, expired in late July. The Senate simply blew past the August 1st rent deadline without renewing them. Then they spent the first two weeks of August continuing to fail to renew them, as Republicans and Democrats debated how much and on what terms it would be acceptable to slash them. Unable to reach a compromise, now the Senate has gone on recess until September. Luckily, it's warm out, makes sleeping in your car more comfortable. Senate Republicans deserve the lion's share of the blame on this occasion, of course. They're the ones insisting that the extension of the previous $600 a week federal unemployment benefit, which was the only thing keeping millions of unemployed people from complete financial calamity and a domino effect of apocalyptic consequences, is, quote, unaffordable. They're the ones talking about saving for a rainy day in the middle of a Category 5 hurricane. Their proposal for the next coronavirus relief package is nothing short of sadistic. One almost gets the impression that they're consciously trying to create a fear of destitution so pervasive that it overrides the conflicting fear of COVID-19 that's keeping the economy partially shut down. But the Democrats don't get to be the heroes here. Decades of embracing neoliberal pro-corporate policy, of entrenching and normalizing the logic of privatization, deregulation, and austerity that benefits the smaller capitalist class at the expense of everyone else, has led us to this impasse. It has hollowed out our public sector, eviscerated and imperiled by what, what existed of our social safety net, and emboldened an increasingly brazen reactionary right. The Senate is shamelessly abandoning the American working class in the middle of this pandemic and economic shutdown. But really, it's only an extension of an earlier and more profound abandonment, which will take a political revolution to reverse. Next up is a piece written by Rua al-Jazeri, published at Santa and republished at popularresistance.org. Stealing the resources of the Syrian people and plundering their wealth has always been a major goal of the United States and Syria, as it has completed its hostile approach by supporting terrorism there through an agreement between it and Qassad, SDF militia, to pillage the Syrian oil in an aggravated and declared crime that violates the rules of international law. The administration of U.S. President Donald Trump has worked for years on the scheme to plunder the Syrian oil, which was finally embodied in the agreement between Washington and Qassad militia, as informed sources revealed to the CNN that the agreement grant an American oil company called Delta Crescent Energy, which was created to implement the American scheme, broad powers to seize half of the Syrian oil fields and invest in them. Quote, We have been authorized to engage in all aspects of energy development, transportation, marketing, refining, 
and exploration in order to develop and redevelop the infrastructure in the region, said James Kane, a former U.S. ambassador to Denmark during George W. Bush administration and one of the co-founders of Delta Crescent Energy. CNN noted that Kane's two other partners in the company are James Reese, a retired Delta Force Army officer who used to run his own private security firm, and John Dorier, a veteran oil executive with years of experience operating in the Middle East. The trio formed the new company for the sole purpose of securing this deal in Syria and have worked intensely with the State Department officials for more than a year, sources tell CNN. The agreement between Qassad Militia and the American company can be described simply as a continuation of Washington's violations of the rules of international law. As the Russian Foreign Ministry confirmed on Saturday that the agreement of pillaging the Syrian oil is a continuation of Washington's violations of international law and Syria's sovereignty over its lands. The ministry noted that the Americans are not satisfied with their illegal occupation for regions in Syria but they also participate in stealing and plundering the country's natural resources and illicitly trading in them, knowing that these resources belong to the Syrian people only. Although the U.S. State Department and Pentagon have officially sought to distance themselves from the project, but the sources told CNN that behind the scenes the State Department was active in making the deal happen. Last week, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo for the first time confirmed the deal in answering a question from Republican Senator Lindsey Graham during a hearing on Capitol Hill. Quote, The deal took a little longer, Senator, than we had hoped, and we're now in implementation. It can be very powerful, Pompeo told Graham. Earlier, a foreign and expatriates ministry official source told Santa in a statement that this agreement represents a deal between thieves who are stealing and thieves who are buying, affirming that this agreement is null and void and has no legal basis, warning that such despicable acts express the approach adopted by those client militias which have accepted to be a cheap, pup, cheap puppet in the hands of the U.S. occupation. Yemeni Foreign Minister Hisham Sharaf has also condemned the continuation of adopting an aggressive approach by the U.S. against Syria through supporting the outlaw groups and its involvement in stealing Syrian oil, stressing that the agreement to steal Syrian oil is void and only practiced by thieves of the wealth of peoples and their enemies. So, uh, par for the course for U.S. imperialism, stealing and plundering, you know, when when we talk about uh, colonization and we talk about imperialism, some people like to talk about those things in past tense and, the, uh, and act as if those are not uh, ongoing, but were aberrations in our history when it's clear if you look around and pay attention that that is certainly not the case. These are active ideologies and active uh, methods of our quote-unquote international relations around the world. And here's another example of it. This piece is also published at popularresistance.org. 
is written by Winston Lopez of Radio La Primarisma. An orchestrated plan financed by the United States to overthrow the democratically elected Nicaragua government during the next two years was leaked in a document from the U.S. Embassy and presented July 31, 2020 by Nicaraguan journalist William Grigsby on his political analysis program, Sin Fronteras, and as an article on Radio La Primercima website. Grigsby says a new destabilization plan is in response to the fact that the U.S. realizes President Daniel Ortega will win the November 2021 elections. The 18-page document, which is actually part of a 93-page document, is RFTOP number 720-524-20R-00004, with the title RAIN, or Responsive Assistance in Nicaragua. It is a terms of reference contract used to hire a U.S. company, like the descendants of Blackwater, to take charge of the plan. The company will direct the local actors to disrupt public order and carry out other violent actions before, during, and or after the 2021 elections. The funds to implement this plan were allocated through the International Development Agency, AID, which is also the U.S. institution that has provided the most money openly in recent years to the Nicaraguan opposition for coup-related activities. The document establishes three scenarios that they call, quote, democratic transition in Nicaragua. Quote, RAIN will pursue these activities against a variety of scenarios generally falling under three categories. 1. Free, fair, and transparent elections lead to an orderly transition. The U.S. candidate wins. 2. A sudden political transition occurs following a crisis. A coup leads to a U.S.-backed government. 3. Transition does not happen in an orderly and timely manner. The regime remains resilient in the face of domestic and international pressure. It is also possible that the regime may remain in power following electoral reforms and a fair election, but without changes to the rule of law or democratic governance. For example, without changes that benefit U.S. corporations. Unquote. The document reveals that the U.S. government realizes it is a good possibility that the FSLN party will win the 2021 elections in a transparent manner that receives international approval. The document says that the purpose of hiring the company is to create the conditions for a, quote, democratic transition in Nicaragua, involving the media, businessmen, non-governmental organizations, and students, just like the 2018 failed coup attempt. Another section states that if the opposition were to win the elections, that the new government must immediately submit to the policies and guidelines established by the United States. This scenario includes persecution of Sandinistas, dissolving the national police and the army, among other institutions. The document calls on its actors to try and deepen the political and economic problems, taking into account the context of the COVID-19 
Since March, the U.S.-directed opposition has focused 95% of their actions on attempting to discredit Nicaragua's prevention, contention, and COVID treatment. However, this only had some success in the international media and is now backfiring since Nicaragua is the country with one of the lowest mortality rates in the continent. On July 31, a fire was set to the Christ on the Cross known in Nicaragua as the Sangre de Cristo in the Managua Cathedral, and the Catholic leadership is calling it a terrorist action and blaming the Sandinistas. This is likely the first false flag operation under the new program, RAIN. In the detailed police investigation, they found that the priests had turned off security cameras. They also found no evidence of it having been an industrial or even a homemade bomb. They appear to have used what was in the chapel, alcohol in a plastic bottle, and lit candles. To get into the cathedral in this particular area, there is always a priest or nun present. Despite the amount of money that the opposition has received from the United States, more than $31 million between the end of 2017 and May 1, 2020, the document laments that the opposition is not unified around a political party or a candidate, and that the plan contemplates abrupt changes in the ability to respond quickly to, quote, install a new government. The document also states that, quote, conflicts often arise between peasant groups and the rest of the opposition, and students often distrust business leaders. Confident that there will be a coup d'etat in Nicaragua, USAID writes that the best option may be to have the opposition refuse to participate in elections, which is what happened in 1984 because of U.S. direction. The possibility that the current Sandinista government will win the 2021 elections, even after electoral reforms, is repeated various times. Under this type of situation, the company hired by USAID must be prepared to respond immediately in directing civil society to implement more destabilization actions. USAID will fund activities to destabilize the country using local partners, public opinion analysis, and social network monitoring to create false news. The document also details the participation of the United States Embassy in Managua, which will be in charge of executing a series of diplomatic actions, such as the creation of a commission to legitimize a new government imposed by overthrowing the Sandinistas. As it is clear that to the U.S. that the FSLN will be victorious, USAID proposes a, quote, delayed or unforeseen transition of government where it seeks to create a political and economic crisis. The document was written in March or April of 2020 when they supposed the COVID pandemic would cause great stress on the Nicaraguan health system and that this would be one way to bring about a crisis and exert pressure. Quote, Once a great health, political, and economic crisis is created in Nicaragua, USAID intensifies its new programmatic strategy, which will lead to destabilizing the country. In other words, their plan counted on the development of unrest in the population from COVID-19 that could be utilized. The set of assumptions laid out in the document is what the company hired by the United States is to base their disruption action plans 
on with civil society in order to succeed. It calls on the opposition and the exiles to carry out actions of interference in a unified way. Finally, the document makes it clear that the people of Nicaragua will be left without basic services as a result of the coup d'etat orchestrated and financed by the United States while they plan for organized crime to increase. So as we go through our election here in the U.S. this fall in 2020 and claims and counterclaims of interference by outside actors are thrown about, don't forget that we are the masters of interfering in other countries interfering in the civil society, interfering in the elections, overthrowing governments, taking whatever we feel we have the right to take. So there may be meddling in our election. There may be outsiders that want to influence the results. It's happened in the past. It will happen in the future. No one, no country out there is doing to the United States anything close to the level of what the United States is doing to other countries to manipulate what's happening, happening politically. Next up is a piece at, from HowieHawkins.us. This is the Howie Hawkins and Angela Walker campaign site for the presidency and vice presidency of the U.S. on the Green Party and Socialist Party tickets. This piece is one of the uh, white papers on policy. This is Community Control of the Police, an idea whose time came and never left. Quote, Their real power is manifested in the organized guns and force. But we're saying that the people in this community, the people in this country, don't have any control over that organized guns, force, and power. We're saying that the capitalists, the racists, and the others have control over it. And we're saying that we want to change it, that we want to revolutionize it, turn it over into the hands of the people for a new process to occur. We're saying we want community control. That was Bobby Seale at the Chicago Community Control of the Police Conference on June 1, 1973. Former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg described his stop-and-frisk policy in New York City this way. Quote, 95% of your murders murderers and murder victims fit one mo you can just take the description xerox it and pass it out to all the cops they are male minorities 16 to 25 the way you get the guns out of the kids hands is to throw them up against the wall and frisk them forget about probable cause and basic constitutional rights Over-policing by racial profiling 
is how black and brown people often encounter police. Bloomberg was speaking at the Aspen Institute in Colorado on February 5, 2015. The Aspen Institute is a liberal think tank that sees itself as, quote, a place of moral instruction for the power elite. It is not the kind of place you would find Donald Trump, who has no shame, curiosity, or interest in self-reflection. Aspen is where the liberal elite goes to reflect. What Bloomberg's remarks make clear is that black and brown people need community control of their police. Whether under the direction of self-styled liberals like Bloomberg or the tough guy bravado of his mayoral predecessor and Trump crony, Rudy Giuliani, stop-and-frisk racial profiling had devastating consequences for black and Latino communities in New York City. It meant constant stress and trauma for African-American and Latino families, including the removal of hundreds of thousands of family members to jails and prisons, mostly for minor offenses like marijuana possession. Under Bloomberg's mayorality between 2002 and 2013, black and Latino youth, quote, got tossed, as they called it, over 5 million times by New York City police. Young men were stopped for no reason other than being African American and Latino, whether they were on their way to and from school or work, out for groceries, or just talking with friends on their own block. Hundreds of thousands were stopped and frisked each year, with a high of 685,724 in 2011. Ninety percent of those stopped were African American or Latino in a city that was 54% black and brown. Ninety percent were not charged with a crime. Of those charged, more were charged with marijuana possession than anything else. And 440,000 were arrested for marijuana during Bloomberg's mayoral tenure. Racially profiled over-policing is not unique to New York City. It is the normal practice of many sheriff and police departments across the nation. It has been that way for centuries. It is a policy with deadly consequences for too many people living in those communities. This policy paper makes a case for reviving the Black Panther Party program for community control of the police, an idea whose time came 50 years ago and never left. If New York City had community control of the police when Bloomberg was mayor, the community would have had the power to halt his racist stop-and-frisk program. Community control means elected neighborhood review boards with real investigative and policymaking powers in their communities and a citywide elected police commission to set citywide police department policies and determine disciplinary sanctions for police misconduct. The Panthers program was designed to give oppressed communities control of their police departments in order to hold police officers accountable for misconduct and to institute a culture and policies for policing so that police departments serve and protect communities instead of abusing them. In the years since 1970, when the Panthers began campaigning for community control of the police, many cities have dealt with police brutality issues by instead instituting review boards appointed by politicians. 
As we will see below, review boards have failed to reduce police brutality and killings. They have also done little to change the culture and policies of police departments, which have become ever more militarized over the last five decades. We will also see in what follows how one city, Richmond, California, under a green mayor, did change the culture and policies of its police department and provided help and opportunities to at-risk youth who were responsible for much of the city's property and violent crime. The result was a radical reduction in police shootings and brutality complaints, as well as the city's crime and murder rates. Proper policing is as much a goal of community control as holding police officers accountable. The federal government cannot require community control of the police under the federal system of government established by the U.S. Constitution. Community control of the police is a reform that must be instituted at the state, county, or municipal levels. However, the federal government can encourage community control and proper policing through policing-related data collection, federal investigation and prosecution of local police misconduct, policy recommendations, and funding programs. This policy paper concludes with a list of policies the federal government should adopt to encourage community control and proper policing. The number of people killed by police each year has not declined in recent years, even though the overall crime rate has been declining for three decades. Those killed by police are disproportionately black and brown and low income. Few police who patrol these communities live in them. They are more of an occupying army than a police force that protects and serves those communities. It is time to renew the movement for community control of the police, particularly in low-income black and brown communities that experience the poorest policing services and the most police brutality. Police killings of black men was an ongoing reality in America during slavery and segregation eras. The issue became a national political issue when the civil rights movement made police brutality a national issue. It has moved to the forefront of national consciousness since then in cycles, notably in the late 1960s, when police beatings and killings precipitated the black urban rebellions, and in the early 1990s, after videographed police beating of Rodney King, the issue returned to the national spotlight with the high-profile killings of Trayvon Martin in 2012 and Eric Garner and Michael Brown in 2014. The Black Lives Matter movement exploded in 2013 after the acquittal of a wannabe cop, George Zimmerman, for Martin's murder. National attention increased the next year when a video of the strangulation by New York City police of Eric Garner went viral in July. The next month, large protests were mounted in Ferguson, Missouri, after Michael Brown was shot to death by a police officer. Scenes of unarmed protesters facing down a militarized police force with helmets, body armor, military-grade weapons, and armored personnel carriers were all over the media. Although 96% of victims of police killings are men, Black Lives Matter also brought public attention to police killings of women, disproportionately black women, including Rakia Boyd in Chicago in 2012, Sandra Bland near Houston in 2016, and Corinne Gaines near Baltimore in 2016. 
In addition, Black Lives Matter brought attention to police bias, harassment, and violence towards transgender people, particularly transgender people of color. High-profile killings of black men in 2016, notably Freddie Gray in Baltimore in April, and Philando Castile near St. Paul, Minnesota in July 2016, made police brutality an issue in the 2016 presidential campaign. Thousands of people have been shot by police in the last decade since the issue was thrust back into the national spotlight. Only a few names of these victims made the national headlines. What is different about the current decade is that number of these killings have been videographed on witness cell phones and police dashboard and body cameras. It has brought the reality of unjustified police killings home to more people than ever before. Yet the killings continue at the same high rate. Violent crime and property crime have been steadily declining in the United States for three decades. The violent crime rate is about 50% lower and the property crime rate about 60% lower today than they were in 1990. The only exceptions to these trends are recent, a slight uptick in the murder rate, a substantial increase in rape, and a major surge in hate crimes. These new developments have come under the reign of Donald Trump's campaign and presidency, with his constant stream of racist, misogynist, xenophobic, and Islamophobic invectives, and his many incitements to violence. Trump has encouraged police misconduct by telling Long Island cops to rough up suspects. He told Border Patrol to break the law to keep migrants out and promised a pardon to the head of Customs and Border Patrol if that law-breaking got him in trouble. The federal government began only this year to collect comprehensive data on police shootings and killings of civilians. In January, after more than three years of pilot development, the FBI unveiled its official National Use of Force data collection. Because the federal government had no reliable data, the Washington Post began in 2015 to log fatal shootings by on-duty police officers. The Post found that the FBI had been undercounting police killings by more than half because reporting by police departments had been voluntary and many departments failed to report. The Post found that over the last five years, there were nearly 5,000 fatal police shootings at a steady clip of about 1,000 each year. In the United States, police officers fatally shoot about three people per day, nearly as many people per day as police in most other wealthy nations shoot in a year. A Vice News investigation in 2017 found that for every fatal police shooting, there were two more non-fatal police shootings, which is 3,000 a year, or over eight police shootings a day. The people shot are disproportionately people of color. The Washington Post found that black people were fatally shot by police at a rate of 29 per million, Latinos at 21 per million, and white people at 11 per million. Although not counted in the Washington Post study, American Indians are the racial group most likely to be killed by police, according to data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. These rates reflect the racially disproportionate rates of incarceration in the United States. 
In 2017, black men were incarcerated at a rate of 2,336 per 100,000, compared to 1,054 for Latino men and 397 per 100,000 for white men. Incarceration rates have increased by over 500% of what they were before the war on drugs was initiated in the 1970s. Though incarceration rates have declined modestly in the last decade, U.S. incarceration rates remain the highest in the world by far, with rates 5 to 10 times higher than those of other industrialized nations. Racial bias in law enforcement has targeted communities of color for over-policing. Even though drug use rates do not differ substantially by race or ethnicity, black people were 3.7 times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession than white people in 2010, even though their use of marijuana is about the same. In low-income communities of color, residents have fraught relationships with the police. These communities see the police over-policing for minor offenses and under-protecting them from violent and property crimes. The officers who are disproportionately white and live outside of their municipality are often compared to an occupying army. In fact, many police officers are veterans of U.S. military operations abroad, and civilian police departments are increasingly equipped with surplus military equipment, including grenade launchers, M4, M14, and M16 military assault rifles, and armored personnel carriers, which are transferred to police departments from the Department of Defense through the 1033 program. Over-policing and under-protection of black communities has a long history in America, going back to the origins of police departments and the slave patrols. They have played a central role in enforcing segregation up to the present day. A major focus of the Black Panther Party based in Oakland, California, in the late 1960s, was police misconduct towards the black community. Quote, We want an immediate end to police brutality and murder of black people, was one of the points in their 10-point program. To address over-policing and under-protection, the Black Panther Party put forth a proposal in 1970 for community control of the police. They had hoped to get their proposal on the ballot in San Francisco, Oakland, Richmond, and Berkeley via ballot initiative, but were able to successfully complete the initiative petition only in Berkeley. The proposition was placed on a ballot as a referendum for the April 1971 city elections. Instead of a police chief appointed by the mayor, the proposal called for a police commission elected by the people as a top police authority. Community control would be exercised through elected police review boards in each of Berkeley's three distinct communities. The predominantly black working class flats, the predominantly white middle class hills, and the youthful university and downtown neighborhood. The elected neighborhood police review boards would have strong investigative powers and the authority to make recommendations to the police commission on the discipline or termination of police officers for misconduct. Officers would be required to live in the neighborhoods they serve, 
in a city that was one-third black at that time. Only 18 of Berkeley's 272 police were black. The Berkeley referendum on community control of the police was closely followed through the San Francisco Bay Area. As a high school senior, I remember watching Ron Dellums, the newly elected U.S. House member from his Oakland Berkeley district, argue for community control in a debate broadcast by the PBS station in the Bay Area, KQED. Though the community control initiative was portrayed as an anti-police measure by its opponents, proponents like Black Panther leader Bobby Seale worked with progressive police officers to root out the racists in the police force. The black community wanted officers to really serve and protect the black community instead of abusing it. The poster and slogan of the campaign for community control embodied this approach. Quote, it's your choice, policemen or pigs. Vote for community control of police. When the election came, the Berkeley proposition was soundly defeated by a two-to-one margin. But the Black Panther Party continued to push community control of the police as essential to ending police brutality. In June 1973, the Black Panther Party held a major community control of the police conference in Chicago. The 1,000 people in attendance heard speeches from Fannie Lou Hamer, Bobby Seale, comedian Dick Gregory, Richard Hatcher, mayor of Gary, Indiana, Bobby Rush, then chairman of the Chicago Black Panther Party and now a member in the U.S. House, and Renault Robinson of the Afro-American Patrolmen's League in Chicago. The conference aimed to promote an ordinance for community control of the police in Chicago, very similar to the Berkeley proposal, except that it proposed 21 neighborhood police review boards in that larger city. The proposal did not go far in Chicago City Council at that time. No community control proposals were adopted in any city as a result of the Black Panther Party campaign. What was increasingly adopted in cities were citizen or civilian police review boards appointed by city officials to hear complaints and make recommendations to city and police authorities for reform and police discipline. Berkeley, for example, instituted a review board in 1973, two years after the community control referendum was defeated. In some places like Syracuse, New York, advocates insisted on naming the board a citizen as opposed to a civilian review board because they felt that calling it a civilian board implied the police were a military force rather than a municipal peacekeeping force. The history of the Citizen Police Review Board idea goes back to the 1920s, when progressive-era reformers were concerned with police corruption by urban political machines, and civil libertarians and civil rights organizations were concerned with police brutality. Up through the 1960s, very few review boards were established due to resistance from police unions and politicians. The few that were created, including in Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, and New York had little authority and few resources. With growing protests against police brutality by civil rights organizations from the 1960s through the 1980s, review boards expanded to more than 100 cities. But due to resistance by police unions and the prevailing law and order and war on drugs political narratives, those that were established remained appointed 
with limited investigatory and disciplinary powers. Most were designed to provide a safety valve for community anger to blow off steam at police brutality. They were intended more to improve community police relations than to punish and root out police misconduct. With crime in decline and police brutality persisting, the trend since the 1990s has been to make police review boards a normal part of city governments. Over 200 cities now have them in some form, sometimes since the 1990s with a hybrid or parallel structure for reviewing systemic racial bias and policing by city auditors, ombudsmen, or outside contractors. While the number of review boards has proliferated, they continue to face opposition from police unions and center-right politicians. Many have fallen into neglect, defunding, or outright abolition. None of them have met the objectives of the Community Control of Police proposal. Elected, not appointed review boards and police commissioners. Full investigative powers, including subpoena power. Disciplinary power. And a police residency requirement. A new proposal for community control of the Chicago Police was introduced in 2018 into the City Council. Chicago has a notoriously abusive police department. The 1969 murder of Black Panthers Fred Hampton and Mark Clark by Chicago Police and FBI agents led to no convictions for the murderers. A subsequent civil lawsuit revealed that much information about the planning and execution of the murders was withheld by authorities, leading the city of Chicago, Cook County, and the federal government to finally settle in 1982 for a $1.85 million payment to the families of Hampton and Clark. Chicago Police Commander George Burge and his midnight crew of Southside detectives tortured more than 100 black suspects between 1972 and 1991 by suffocating, beating, burning, playing Russian roulette, and electrocuting them until they confessed to a crime. Burge was fired in 1993, but none of his crew were ever convicted of a crime for their torture. Burge was eventually convicted for perjury and obstruction of justice in 2010. He served four years in prison, far less than his many victims. The city of Chicago agreed to pay nearly $5.5 million in 2016 to 57 torture victims. The abuse by Chicago police has continued. For decades, more than one person a week has been shot by Chicago police, over 1,600 people between 1986 and 2015. Black people are 14 times more likely to experience Chicago police use of force than white people. Chicago police use of force on average on an average of 10 people a day, 90% of whom are black. From 2000 to 2016, only 1.2% of complaints against all Chicago police officers accused of misconduct resulted in a suspension or firing. Complaints by black people rose during this period, even while the black population of Chicago declined. When a police dashboard video surfaced in 2015 of police firing 16 bullets the year before into Laquan McDonald, a retreating unarmed 17-year-old black youth, 
a campaign was initiated to replace the impotent view board, the Civilian Office of Police Accountability, with community control. As a result of public pressure spearheaded by the Chicago Alliance Against Racist and Political Oppression, community control legislation has been introduced into the Chicago City Council that calls for an all-elected Civilian Police Accountability Council, or CPAC, consisting of elected community members, one each from all 22 police districts. CPAC would be empowered to hold police accountable for their crimes they commit and to control how their communities are policed. Among CPAC's specific powers are to hire and fire Chicago's police superintendent, establish police policy, investigate police shootings and allegations of excessive force and abuse, negotiate police contracts, and pass judgment on police discipline. The proposal is championed in City Council by the Six-Member Socialist Caucus of Members of Democratic Socialists of America, and currently supported by nine other council members. It's still 11 votes short of the 26 votes needed for passage. Advocates vow to keep making it an election issue until they get the votes on the council to pass it. The reforms made in Richmond, California, between 2006 and 2014, under a Green Party mayor, Gail McLaughlin, can be seen as another legacy of the Black Panther Party campaign for community control of the police in the Bay Area. While the reforms did not establish elected neighborhood review boards and an elected police commission, it did institute the kind of policing approach the Black Panther Party hoped community control would create. These reforms got at the roots of police misconduct by changing the culture of policing from focusing on tickets and arrests to building relationships and solving problems with the people on community policing beats. The crime reduction reforms focused on helping at-risk youth. Richmond is a working-class city with 80% people of color. It had earned a reputation as one of the most dangerous cities in America for its high murder and crime rates. Its murder rate was consistently higher than Chicago and Detroit cities with notoriously high rates. In 2006, Richmond hired a police chief committed to diversifying the police force, to community policing, and to providing help to at-risk youth as central components of a proper policing and crime reduction policy. The new police chief, Chris Magnus, replaced aggressively paramilitary street teams with real community policing. This community policing was not a small group within the Department for Public Relations, as is the case in many so-called community policing programs. In Richmond, every officer was assigned to a specific neighborhood to patrol a defined beat, often on foot or bike. The officers were charged with building relationships and solving problems with the residents and businesses. To address the high rate of gang-related crime and shootings, an Office of Neighborhood Safety was established with a $1.2 million budget and 12 staff to work in concert with the community and church groups in reaching out to active shooters and gangs that were responsible for most of the shootings. They were given a choice, accept help, including cash payments for staying out of trouble, and access to education, jobs, travel opportunities, counseling, and drug treatment, or 
expect close scrutiny and consequences for criminal activity. Promotion in the police department was tied to successfully solving problems, de-escalating conflicts, and building positive relationships with the neighborhood, not on the volume of tickets and arrests. To integrate officers into city neighborhoods, police officers were offered free apartments in public housing projects, paid for by the city budget. The president of the police officers' union chose to live in public housing. Many officers who preferred paramilitary policing over community policing left the force. Over Magnus's tenure, he was able to personally select 90 of the department's 140 officers and 42 of 46 lieutenants and captains. Richmond did not set up a structure of community control. It used a hybrid model of independent internal investigations and, review, and a review board. Internal affairs investigations were removed from department headquarters to an independent office of professional accountability, OPA, in City Hall staffed by people who are not police officers. Richmond Citizen Police Review Commission hears appeals of OPA recommendations and employs a professional investigator who has the power to subpoena officers and question them under oath. The police chief retained the power to make the final decisions on officer discipline or termination. The change in the culture of the Richmond Police Department was exemplified by Chief Magnus when he held up a Black Lives Matter sign at a December 2014 vigil for Michael Brown, who was shot dead by a police officer in Ferguson, Missouri, the previous August. The reforms in Richmond corresponded with major reductions in violence and crime, after decades, with homicides routinely exceeding 40 per year, they dropped from 42 in 20, 2006 to 11 in 2014, the lowest on record. All violent crimes dropped by 23% and property crimes by 40% between 2006 and 2014. The police force grew from 20% to 60% people of color over the same period. 20% of the officers were women by 2014. There was less than one officer involved shooting per year over the same period. No residents were killed by a police officer in Richmond between 2008 and 2014. In nearby Vallejo, with similar demographics and crime rates, six people were killed in police encounters over the same period. Richmond's progressive policing and crime reduction policies are not a substitute for community control of the police. Those policies depend on the Richmond Progressive Alliance, RPA, continuing to have a city council majority. A two-term limit requires Gail McLaughlin to run for the city council instead of mayor in 2014, and she won her race. The opposition to the RPA is candidates who are lucratively funded by Chevron, which has a major refinery in Richmond. A structure of community control would give the people direct control over the police, no matter who has the mayorship and the city council majority. Federal Policies to Support Community Control and Proper Policing The federal government cannot require community control of local police agencies. The federalized system of government set up by the U.S. Constitution does not grant the federal government a general police power. 
That authority is largely reserved for the states, which in turn have devolved much of that authority to local sheriff and police departments. The Constitution, however, does vest the federal government with some powers to influence local policing under the Spending, Commerce, Territorial, and Necessary and Proper Clauses, as well as under the Enforcement Sections of the Civil War Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. These powers include policing-related data collection, federal investigation and prosecution of local police misconduct, and policy recommendations and funding to encourage proper policing. Federal Data Collection Efforts on Police Use of Force Federal Data Collection of Police Use of Force Incidents gives policymakers baselines for measuring the effectiveness of policies in reducing police misconduct. The reality for federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies of having to report their use of force data in itself makes these agencies more aware that they can be held accountable for misconduct. Use of force data collection should be continued and strengthened in the following ways. The FBI should continue the National Use of Force Data Collection Program that began in 2020 to collect data on all incidents resulting in death, injury, and use of firearms by law enforcement agencies. The Bureau of Justice Statistics Police Public Contact Survey, PPCS, which collects data on citizens' interactions with police, including police use of force, should be strengthened from a voluntary survey to a comprehensive mandatory survey. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's National Violent Death Reporting System, NVDRS, operates in 40 states to gather and link records from law enforcement, coroners, and medical examiners vital statistics, and crime laboratories. The NVDRS should be expanded to all states and federal jurisdictions and include comprehensive data on deaths resulting from interventions by law enforcement agencies. Continue the Death in Custody Reporting Act, which requires states to submit data to the Department of Justice regarding the death of any person who is detained under arrest in the process of being arrested, en route to be incarcerated, or incarcerated in a municipal or county jail, a state prison, a state-run boot camp prison, a boot camp prison that is contracted out by the state, any local or state contract facility, or any other local or state correctional facility, including juvenile facilities. States face up to a 10% reduction in their funding under the Edward Byrne Memorial Justice Assistance Grant Program if they do not provide the data. Federal Investigation and Prosecution of Law Enforcement Misconduct Federal law enforcement of police misconduct should be strengthened in the following ways. The Department of Justice should be aggressive in bringing criminal enforcement cases directly against offending police officers under federal civil rights statutes. The DOJ should be aggressive in bringing civil liability cases against systemic abuse by law enforcement agencies, as well as the wrongdoing of individual officers. The DOJ should expand its use of federal consent decrees to reform police departments with systemic problems of police misconduct, 
should start by restoring and enforcing existing federal consent decrees to reform police departments that have been found to be abusing their citizens, including the Baltimore and Ferguson consent decrees that the Trump administration rescinded. Congress should enact a law to require the appointment of a federal prosecutor by the U.S. Attorney General whenever a law officer is accused of violating the civil rights of a human being, including bodily injury or death. Local district attorneys and state attorneys general are too close to local police in day-to-day law enforcement for impartial investigations. Many in the Green Party have demanded a law like this since the mid-1990s called the Johnny Gamage Law, named after a young black man suffocated to death by police in a Pittsburgh suburb in 1995. I have written elsewhere about the similarities in the police killings of Johnny Gamage and Eric Garner, where the cops were not punished, the DOJ declined to bring civil rights action, and the families eventually received compensation as a result of their own civil lawsuits. Federal Policy Leadership and Funding While the federal government cannot compel local police departments' policies, except in cases of remediating civil rights violations in federal consent decrees, it should exert strong influence on policies in the following ways. Condition federal funding for law enforcement agencies on the adoption of community control and proper policing policies. Enact a grant program to assist transitions to community control of the police. Compel and model community control of the police in federal jurisdictions such as Washington, D.C., Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. The DOJ should issue guidance for local governments and law enforcement agencies that encourages community control of local police agencies. The DOJ should sponsor studies that examine policing practices. The DOJ should provide training for local government and police officials in community control of the police. The federal government should discourage the militarization of local policing by ending the 1033 program that transfers surplus U.S. military equipment, including grenade launchers, assault rifles, and armored personnel carriers, to local sheriff and police departments. Police should not be an occupying military force. They should be a peacekeeping police force that serves and protects the people. The DOJ should provide more funding for and condition other funding on law enforcement agencies providing more training to law enforcement officers on eliminating implicit bias and racial profiling. The DOJ should provide more funding for and condition other funding on the promotion of diversity in police hiring and retention. The DOJ should provide more funding for and condition other funding on expanding the use of body-worn cameras under good policies. Good policies should promote police accountability, reduce police abuses, and increase community trust. They should prevent mass surveillance and invasions of privacy. Good policies should regulate when the cameras are to be turned on and who has access to the footage and under what conditions. Rooting out racists and sadists from law enforcement in the criminal justice system. We won't rid policing and the whole criminal justice system of racism 
until we have a top to bottom reorganization that removes the racists and brings in new people who are committed to impartial justice. From local police departments to federal law enforcement agencies, from cops in the streets to lawyers and judges in the courts. A major goal of community control of the police is to empower the community to remove racist and sadistic cops out of police forces. The federal government should set an example by replacing immigration and customs enforcement and customs and border protection with a new immigration and border agency staffed by officers who have been vetted to weed out the racists and sadists. The racism and sadism has always been present in U.S. policing, but has been encouraged by Trump since he took office and made it policy to separate migrant and asylum-seeking families and cage their children. The racism became evident for all to see with the public disclosure of the racist and misogynist comments that filled a Border Patrol Facebook group in which 9,500 of 20,000 Border Patrol officers were members. Investigations have also uncovered many racist Facebook groups for police officers. White racist groups have been actively recruiting racists into police departments. The problem of racists in police departments brings us back to the need for community control of the police, particularly in black and brown communities that are the primary victims of racist police abuse. At the federal level, the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security should redirect their investigatory resources to monitoring white racist groups and preventing white racist violence and stop their targeted surveillance of nonviolent dissident political groups that are critical of immigration and policing policies. Cut poverty and inequality to cut crime and the need for policing. Policing is much more effective at apprehending criminals after crimes have been committed than preventing crimes in the first place. The most effective way to reduce police misconduct is to reduce crime and therefore the need for policing and the number of encounters where police might misuse force. Crime rates and inequality are positively correlated within countries and between countries, according to a comprehensive 2002 World Bank study. The study found that this correlation is caused by the degree of income inequality, even after controlling for other crime determinants. Some 60 academic studies have found that income inequality predicts murder rates better than any other variable. To really reduce police violence, we must uproot the causes of crime in poverty and inequality and reduce the need for policing. It is past time to enact an economic bill of rights, as President Franklin Roosevelt called upon Congress to enact in his last two State of the Union addresses in 1944 and 1945. The demand for an economic bill of rights was picked up by the civil rights movement with the demands of the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, the 1966 Freedom Budget, in the 1968 Poor People's Campaign. It is time to renew those demands today. An economic Bill of Rights today should include these six economic human rights. A job guarantee. 
A public job for anyone willing and able who cannot find a private job. The job should be on public works or in public services and provide a living wage with decent benefits. An income guarantee. A guaranteed income above poverty built into the federal income tax system. If your income is below poverty, instead of paying taxes to the federal government, the government will send you a check to bring your monthly income above poverty. A decent home. A radical expansion of quality public housing to provide an affordable option for all and to serve as competition to keep rents in the private market down to closer to the real costs of providing housing. Comprehensive health care. An improved and expanded Medicare for All system. Providing all medically necessary services with free choice of providers through a single public payer. Lifelong free public education. Free public education from pre-K and child care through post-secondary college, technical school, and continuing adult education. A secure retirement. Double Social Security benefits and fully fund job-related pensions funds in financial trouble. An economic bill of rights will create a standard of living floor that will end absolute poverty, but it will not significantly reduce the high level of relative inequality that is not only the single most important cause of violent crime, but also the source of many other social problems. In the spirit level, why greater equality makes stronger societies, Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett review the studies that show that income inequality increases many social programs, nope, many social problems, including mental illness, physical illness, infant mortality, drug use, illiteracy, racist scapegoating, and discrimination against minor minorities, working hours, excess consumption driven by status com competition, property crime, and incarceration. They show why more unequal societies have less social mobility, educational achievement, empathy, trust, cooperation, status for women and minorities, and life expectancy. We will never reverse extreme and growing economic inequality as long as the capitalist mode of production predominates where workers get a fixed wage and capitalists take the rest of the value that labor creates as profit. To increase equality, we must have a fair distribution of income at the point of production. People should receive income for working, not simply for owning productive property. If you want more income, you can do more work. For those who cannot work, do not work, or are limited in how much work they can do due to age, disability, family care responsibilities, school attendance, and so forth, a guaranteed income above poverty will ensure that everyone, no matter what their circumstances, can live at a decent standard of living. To have a fair and equitable distribution of income, we need to move to an ecological, democratic, socialist economy featuring worker cooperatives where the wealth we create is distributed equitably according to our labor contribution, not capital ownership. Consumer cooperatives that provide goods and services economically at cost to members, not for cost plus private profits. 
Democratic public enterprises for infrastructure, natural monopolies, and large-scale businesses that operate at cost for public benefit instead of maximizing private profits. Such public utilities will lower the costs of living and doing business and provide the public avenues for private commerce. Social wealth funds to progressively use a portion of tax proceeds and expenditures to buy a portfolio of stocks, bonds, and real estate that progressively socializes productive wealth and shares its net income across the population. Democratic economic planning of public sector enterprises to ensure a decent standard of living for all within the boundaries of environmental sustainability. Pending this kind of social transformation to a democratic society, where people are substantively as well as formally equal, and thus the need for policing will be greatly reduced, community control of the police is an immediate reform we must demand to bring abusive police to justice and to institute proper policing that serves and protects our communities. And last up this episode, we have a piece written by Caitlin Johnstone. You can find this at medium.com. This is Consent Rescinded. This sacred pause, this sacred space has opened up between me and my agreements. Agreements I made when I was too young to consent. When I agreed that war is normal. I agreed that greed is good. I agreed some must die. I agreed that poverty is unavoidable. I agreed that everyone must work. I agreed that you can lie to me for my own good. I agreed that I was born bad and only punishment by cruel men could make me good. I agreed that in order to learn, I needed to be abused. I agreed that only things that make money were things worth creating. I agreed that peace was only to be found in death. I agreed that home was only to be found in death. I agreed that release from suffering was only to be found in death. I agreed that rest was only to be found in death. I agreed that heaven was only to be found in death. I agreed that bliss was only to be found in death. I agreed not to assert my right to have any of these things until I died. I agreed that I did not have a right to a home. I agreed that I did not have a right to food. I agreed that I did not have a right to help. I agreed that I did not have a right to happiness. I agreed to give you my body. I agreed to have and to hold. I agreed to pretend you won. I agreed to let it slide. I agreed to keep quiet. I agreed to lie that I was fine. I agreed to lie to myself that I was fine. I agreed that your pleasure was more important than mine. I agreed to feel guilty for what you did to me. I agreed to hate my body. I agreed 
to punish my body. I agreed to hate myself. I agreed to punish myself. I agreed to make your dreams my priority. I agreed to put mine aside. I agreed to be to obey the rules even when the rules were batshit crazy. I agreed to abide by the law even when the law was wrong. I agreed to feeling hopeless instead of feeling anger. I agreed to skipping straight to disappointment without ever stopping to try. I agreed to keeping the peace instead of stopping the war. I agreed to pretend your taunts made me stronger, even while they made me weaker. I agreed to have your babies, even when I did not feel safe enough to do so. I agreed to provide for your babies while pretending you were their provider. I agreed to protect your babies from you while pretending you were their protector. I agreed to weave fairy tales of how great you are while cleaning up the damage you wrought. I agreed that what I do is worth nothing, but what you do is worth the world. I agreed to let you wear my crown and then forget it was mine in the first place. I agreed that you were the creator even as you destroyed my creations. I agreed that all I made was yours, and it was yours to keep from me. I rescind these agreements. As of this moment, across all space and time, through every level of the multiverse, on every strand of DNA, in every permutation of me, in all the hiding spots of my being, in the past, present, and future, for now, and evermore, I do not consent. Consent rescinded. Consent unmanufactured. Consent undone. And that will wrap up this episode of Howie 2020. Remember, you can check out all the back episodes at Bernie-2020.com. You can follow on Twitter at BernieUS2020. Here is Utah Phillips from the album I've Got to Know. This is I Will Not Obey. Thanks for listening. The new ruling party is holding the aces. The rest of the cards are all missing faces. I'm sorry I can't know you today. What can one say? I will not obey. Give us your sons and give us your daughters. No one is safe or immune from the slaughter. How indifference makes them rage. What can one say? I will not obey. National Guard or freedom fighters. All houses belong to cigarette lighters. But who hides in the smoke? What can one say? I will not obey. Better perhaps to perish outside of the bunkers where our generals hide. I turn away and spit. What can one say? I will not obey. Give us the minds of your children to learn the substance of books we have not yet burned. But can they read the sky for rain? 
but can one say, I will not obey? Soon all tyrants will feel our impatience. We choose to create our own combinations. I was always willing to agree, but can one say, I will not obey? The essence of contract is agreement, not coercion or obedience, and agreement is sacred. What can one say? I will not obey. There are so few wars of people's liberation, for the people have so seldom risen. Only the armed faction, listen, the armed faction lies. They recreate the state through their action. When the people rise, it is not they, but the state which dies. I sing this song for the prisoner's release, most of all now for the new state police. You see the guns have changed hands. Again, what can one say? I will not obey.